Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Hello and welcome to Long Time Shorts, a new series of shorter-than-usual episodes of A Long Time in Finance, each one of which gives you a quick hit of financial history from the debt jubilee of ancient Babylon to the latest crypto calamities. Jonathan, imagine you are in the 1970s and you want... I was once. Yeah, well, I was a long time ago. You want to take the family on a nice holiday to France, which is in the days before credit cards and this sort of thing. How much do you think you would need to have a nice holiday then? You're asking me to go back and try and work out deflate the current <laughs> well the answer was you know the answer 50 pounds per head that was enough to keep you that's in great all, comfort that's or that was you what were, you were allowed that's what you were allowed and would it go far enough to have a nice holiday no i don't think so i think it might get you just past calais but not really very much further but you were not allowed to take more than 50 pounds worth of foreign exchange in total per person So you could take the children, they would count as people. You could take the au pair if she'd go with you. And so you'd get £50 for her. But you couldn't take the dog, of course, because there were restrictions and the dog didn't have its own currency allowance. Yeah. So that was rather more than £50 today, obviously. It's more like £700 Is that what it is? I was just about to try and do the sums. But it's not exactly allowing an attractive holiday in the south of France at that sort of price. But this was imposed originally at the outbreak of war in 1939 and turned into a proper law in 1947, which was the Exchange Control Act. The theory was that if you couldn't take your money overseas, you would have to use it at home. And so there would be no capital flight, you couldn't take your capital away, and you wouldn't be pressurising the exchange rate. And you, you presumably also you would have to buy more British goods and invest in the great British industries. Yeah, that were exactly. There. You, so it was, a, it was a sort of siege economy. It was clearly a siege economy when it was in, instituted in 1939. Mm. But when it was turned into a proper law in 1947, that was essentially to protect sterling. Yeah which as then and now is always under pressure one way and another, mm. except for one or two brief periods when it's not. Okay. It's a chronic well, covers all the bases. <laughs> it, is a, it is a chronically weak currency. Yeah. The theory was that this would help support the currency and help to support investment at home. And is there any evidence that it succeeded in these objectives? I think I could say no. As far as I'm aware, there is none whatsoever, partly because enforcing... You think sterling would have been exactly the same had we had exchange controls or not? I think so. But, you know, you can't tell. But the first problem is it's extremely difficult to enforce. The second problem is that the forces on your currency owe much more to the state of your economy than whether or not your citizens are allowed to buy or sell it. So uh, as far as I can see, there is no evidence that it 
that it made any difference. It sounds as though it ought to. And indeed, part of the Corbyn suggestion was to bring them back. And the Green Party, I believe, even now suggests that it's a, it's a good idea. But it did have some effect. It had an Im- impact on the quality of your summer holidays. It as certainly you, you did. You suggested a sort of slightly <laughs> slight uh, element of a moan there at the beginning. <laughs> you, go along to the bank. you go along to the bank with your passport and get it stamped in the back that yeah. you, for your £50. Right. And then, of course, you take out quite a lot of sterling in used fibres and put them in your socks. Right. So that thus turning the black market. Th- <laughs> thus, <laughs> thus turning the average British holidaymaker in France into a criminal. And were you ever searched at the border? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> As you sort of waddled towards the cross channel ferry with <laughs> <laughs> Yes, quite with bits of paper <laughs> coming, out. coming out of your trouser legs. <laughs> <laughs> so no we were very law-abiding i'm sure right uh, when i I'm went glad with to hear my, it with my parents then yeah. but uh, you can see the sort of ideological attraction of it okay. however hopeless it really is in true life yeah if you are trying to shore up your economy the more money you can keep in it surely the better off you'll be but my assumption is once you've created something like this it becomes difficult to change because people get worried about, you know, what happens if there is tremendous pent-up yeah. capital flight and think, everyone is desperate to move there, I go think, on holiday for the rest of their lives to the uh, South Seas or something. You know, that was the great argument for keeping it because, you know, all this pent-up demand, as soon as you re- remove them, yeah. we, there'll be a sort of mad stampede yeah. uh, with the capital and holidaymakers and British businesses rushing off to buy things else, elsewhere. Um, so they were similarly unable to invest overseas, were they? They were, yes. They had to buy dollars, essentially, from other British corporate sellers of dollars. So that if you were a British company and you had an American subsidiary which you sold, you could repatriate those at a special rate. That's and nice. that special rate was what those who were buying overseas had to buy, had to buy it at. Right. It was called the dollar premium. Oh. And another set of fantastically complicated and mostly unenforceable rules mm. uh, were brought in. Okay. And of course, because if you were an importer, you needed foreign currency. So it was easy enough just to add 5% to the invoice in return for getting something at the other end when you when you arrived. Okay. What triggers the... I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. I went to abroad quite recently and I didn't have to <laughs> stuff anything down my socks. What brings about the change? How do we overcome this sort of self-imposed terror? Well, the big thing that happened in the start of the 70s was North Sea Oil. North Sea Oil turned the UK into an oil exporting country for the first and only time in its history. And that made a big impact on people's perception of sterling. Right. Suddenly, it didn't look chronically weak anymore. And indeed, there were moments when, under the Labour government... In the 70s. In the 70s, where it was embarrassingly strong. Right. Because obviously, if your exchange rate goes up, then your exporters find life yeah. harder and the importers find life easier. Yeah. So the strength of the pound encouraged the Labour government to start thinking about putting restrictions 
on who could buy the pound. So how do you, you do that? The, well, I'm not quite sure how they actually managed it, and I don't think they actually did. But they were certainly talking about it right. through the banking system. And so you were presented with the possibility of the all citizens not being allowed to buy foreign exchange and foreign exchange holders not being allowed to buy your currency, which was complete nonsense. Yes, it would have been an odd situation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, along came Geoffrey Howe, in mm. my view, the best post-war chancellor we've ever had. And one of the first things he did uh, on coming to power in 1979 was basically to stand up on the 23rd of October 1979 and scrap the whole lot. He just said they no longer apply. And Dennis Healy, who was the shadow chancellor, said the sky would fall in and there'd be capital flight and everybody would rush off to the south of France with all their loot. And in fact, what happened was almost nothing. Hmm. The exchange rate was unaffected then. And obviously after that, other factors came into play right but at no stage there has been has there been anything which could be described as capital flight from the uk yes uh, although over the long term there have been big changes i mean i think uh, absolutely most yeah. of our investment funds now own a huge amount of stuff overseas yeah which they didn't back in the 70s, obviously. Well, they did. They were being forced to buy. Well, they owned quite a lot, but uh, they obviously had to buy it at at this artificial price if they wanted to. Um, But yes, all all these funds are much more international than Mm. they used to be, Mm. as the whole of the financial system is. Mm. It would be absolutely impossible to impose today with credit cards and all sorts of other sources of finance. And I think it would be widely viewed as an expression of weakness, if not absolute panic, by an administration that tried to impose it. So is there ever an argument for capital control? Sometimes people have talked about reviving. You mentioned Jeremy Corbyn as somebody who would love to impose restrictions. But let's, let's set him aside because he's too easy a target. But is there ever a case for a, a country like Britain to say, actually, we'd need to... I can't see it. I think you can make a case for countries where the currency is extremely weak, like in a a third world country where there is not a great deal of control over the economy by the government Mm. and probably widespread corruption as well. Mm. If you were in one of the sub-Saharan African countries, for example, you might think it's a much better idea to keep your money in dollars than in the local currency. Mm. Indeed, most of the there's something like $5 trillion worth of $100 bills which are held outside America. So I think quite, quite a few of those are in Africa because that makes sense to keep your savings that way. So a sensible reform then? Well, uh, yeah. Where are we I, ending up with this? But that was what Geoffrey Howe did. He so <laughs> specialised. Geoffrey Howe, Howe comes out of this very well. Geoffrey Howe is my... man who acknowledges reality. Yeah. He was, um, <laughs> far, rather than being savaged by a, a dead, dead sheep, sheep as yeah. Dennis Healy once memorably described him, what he could do was impose some really gruesome economic measures and people hardly noticed them. Yes. That was his great skill. Yeah, sort of very <laughs> dull delivery. Yeah, exactly. Bore them to yeah. death. Yeah. I think that's one that 
possibly quasi Quateng, <laughs> a more recent and <laughs> where the sky did fall in, yeah. Chancellor. <laughs> Could have done with a less exciting delivery. Yeah, quite. Well, you know, I think he's the template, really. Being Chancellor should not be uh, scope for grandstanding. It should be dull. 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 And on that <laughs> note, <laughs> I think we'd better draw this to a close. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring.